Well, you know, I've been doing annual things like Easter and Christmas for now, I'm entering the 20th year of doing this. And you wonder, what can you say about things that you've already said things about many times before? And I basically sat in my office and looked over one record from Mark about the crucifixion of Jesus. And as I detailed out what was going on, it just emerged from the text that God is a God of power. He's a God of compassion. And he's a God of details. Because I was observing detail after detail being fulfilled from Scripture. And it's in really interesting ways that seem almost coincidental. And yet, in so many different ways and aspects, these details are being fulfilled. And so, on the one hand, when we look at this, we're seeing Jesus being betrayed, being unjustly accused, unjustly condemned, beaten, whipped, crucified, uh, dying in shame and dishonor. And we see wicked men scheming and carrying out their schemes. They're getting away with murder. And then at the same time, we see God. And he's being compassionate. He's accomplishing perfect, eternal salvation. And because God is compassionate, powerful, interested in fulfilling the details, then we know he also is that way toward us. That he's also going to accomplish the details of our salvation. So we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14 and 15. And rather than read all the scriptures, I thought I'd read the ones relevant to this approach we're going to take. Looking at God's sovereignty and power as he fulfills the details around Jesus' crucifixion. And I'm beginning in Mark 14, the first two verses. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Now, the chief priests, the scribes, these are the men who are in authority over Israel. And they've decided that they're going to kill Jesus. And they're going to do it by trickery. They're going to make a plan, sneak up on him very cleverly, and kill him. And as they're making their plans, they realize if we do this during the Passover, there's probably going to be a riot. We better do this 
at another time afterwards. We don't want a big disturbance. But God, as we see, sovereignly overrules these men and their counsel because Jesus has to die during the Passover because he himself is the fulfillment of the Passover. And so here are men saying, this is what we're going to do. This is when we're going to do it. And God says, no, we're going to do this right on time. It has to happen when I say so. Now, Jesus then institutes communion during Passover. And we're picking that up later in the chapter. In verse 22, now Jesus and his disciples are in an upper room where they, are, they have prepared all the foods and the drinks and everything around the Passover. The Passover was the last of the ten plagues on Egypt. And this feast that God instituted commemorates the last plague that propelled Israel out of the land of Egypt after living there for 430 years. And after being slaves for a long time, in one evening, they were propelled, pushed, kicked out of the land, and set free. And it was the killing of all the firstborn males in Egypt, from Pharaoh sitting on the throne till even the cattle in the stalls, all the firstborn males in Egypt died, except for all the firstborn sons in Israel. They were all protected by a substitute lamb. And the lamb was chosen by each household, kept in the house for 10 days, examined carefully to make sure that there was no blemish, no spot, perfect. And then on the night of Passover, the lamb was slain. The blood was collected, and it was to be applied with hyssop, kind of like a paintbrush, on the doorposts and the lintel. And somebody has noted that when you put those two motions together, you get a cross. Now, the lamb itself is to be roasted whole and eaten. And the leftover was to be burned. None of the bones were to be broken. These are details. Don't you break one bone. So, details. And boy, when this happened on that night in Egypt, 
It says that there was a wailing like there has never been in the land of Egypt. There was not one household that didn't have a firstborn male die. And that is what made Pharaoh send to Moses and say, get out of here. So interesting. Now, during this Passover meal that they're eating, Jesus, it says here in verse 22, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, the custom of the Passover at this time was that there were three pieces of unleavened bread. And this is the second piece, which is to be broken, and then the pieces are to be hidden in the house until the end of the meal. And it's this second piece of bread that Jesus breaks and says, this is my body. And other versions say, this is my body which is broken for you. Saying, this symbolism that you see here is me. And then in verse 23, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. So he's instituting what we call communion, and he's showing that it's the fulfillment of the Passover that God instituted with Moses on that night that Israel was freed from slavery and sin in Egypt. And all of this refers to the greater redemption that Jesus was going to accomplish during this one day that began in the evening. Now in verse 26, it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now that's Zechariah chapter 13, verse seven. But after I have been raised, he says, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Now, this has already been foreseen by God, already written into Scripture, and Jesus clarifies it to them. He says, this is you guys, and you're all going to fall away from me tonight. And with the best of intentions, all of his guys are saying, no, we are your guys, and we're in this with you. And they mean it with all their heart. But this is part of the plan of God, that Jesus be alone. This part comes from Leviticus chapter 16, where it speaks about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And 
part of the detail of, of the Day of Atonement is that no one can help the high priest. Everything that happens, he must do alone. Now, what this is indicating is that Jesus is also the high priest. He's the sacrifice, but he's also the one who is specially chosen out by God and authorized by God. The one offering the sacrifice has to be acceptable to God too. You can't just be anybody. So you have to be chosen out by God. You have to be consecrated and holy. And you have to do all the will of God. Now, what we want to notice right here in this place is that Jesus knows that all of his disciples are going to fall away and he doesn't reject them. He says, I will go before you to Galilee and I want you to meet me there. He doesn't say, by the way, I hope you got the memo. You guys are all fired tonight. Every single one of you are a bunch of yellow turncoats. So I'll manage it from here. You guys are gone. See, Jesus knows that he is going to take the wrath of God for all of their failures and all of their weakness of character and all of their good intentions. Yeah, I just want to... I really feel deeply about this. Well, you're all going to get blown away. And I am going to redeem you. I will do this. The death of Jesus says, it's going to be okay. And when Jesus forgives you, you really are forgiven. But then... He prays for them for three hours in Gethsemane. They come to this olive grove. And he says to his disciples there in verse 32, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Now, the point to this is that when the high priest offers the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, the first thing that he is to do is to fill up a censer, which is a metal plate where you burn incense. Fill it up with incense, and before he goes into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, and the mercy seat that indicates the throne of God. He has to put his arm through that veil with burning incense and 
he's supposed to burn much incense and cover the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat with the smoke from the incense. Lest he die, says Leviticus. So that high priest did not dare go in there until there was a lot of smoke in there. So you burn it, then you get some more on and do it again. And you want that to really burn like crazy because if you don't have enough incense in there, when you step in, you're dead. Now, incense is symbolic of prayer. And what the high priest is to do in this situation is to, with much prayer, yield himself before God to offer the perfect sacrifice. You see, the, the purpose of a high priest is not to accomplish his own will, but to accomplish perfectly the will of God. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 5 that no man takes this honor to himself to be a high priest, but is called of God even as Aaron was. Because later on in the history of Israel, Men like Dathan, Abiram, the sons of Korah, 250, decided to Moses, hey, you take too much upon yourself. We're all holy. We're all going to be priests. And he says, don't you do it. But if you want to be priests, go get your censer, put some incense on it, and we'll see who God accepts. And fire comes out from the Ark of the Covenant that tabernacle, and it burns 250 people. God didn't accept them. And you know why? Because they voted themselves into the spot. They said, hey, I want to be a high priest. I think it'd be fun. Authority, power. And God says, not having it. Called by God. You know why? Because when you vote yourself into the position, you're already wrong. That's not the will of God. What makes you think you're going to carry out perfectly the will of God if the very first step you make going into this job is, I'm going to be a high priest, and you're not asking God, what do you want? Now look at the high priest here. For three hours... He's covering the throne of God with prayers. And you know what the prayer is? Not my will, but yours be done. Three hours of praying, and other gospels say it comes to the point where he's even bursting the blood vessels on his forehead, and the blood is mixing with drops of sweat falling to the ground. So that an angel has to appear to him to strengthen him. He's praying to this extent. And this is what makes him the perfect high priest called by God, is that by much prayer, he's praying, not my will, but yours be done. And he is the perfect high priest to offer the perfect 
sacrifice. Now, when he gets done praying for three hours, he says in verse 41, the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever, whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now, it's written in Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And we know that this applies to Judas because Jesus quoted this in John chapter 13. Now, Jesus has already warned Judas. And he's been telling him, don't do this. Back at the Passover dinner, in verse 21, it says, he's saying, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Now, he knew that Judas was going to betray him. And he knew it when he picked him to be his disciple. He knew the whole time. Now, I don't want to get into a thing about free will and predestination because I don't understand it. You know, as Jesus was telling him, don't do this. And short of just pinning him to the ground and breaking his legs, Judas was free to do everything that he wanted to do. So he warned him. Can you imagine it would be better for you if you had never existed? Because you're not there. You don't exist, but that would be better for you than to ex experience eternal punishment. This is one of those things that you have to be really freaked out about, is the idea of eternal punishment. And if you do think about it for a while, it will freak you out, make you afraid. It, it must, it should. Because Jesus believed in eternal punishment. That's why he's going to the cross in the first place. Now, earlier on, before the Passover dinner, Mary understood what Jesus was about. She took this jar of fabulously expensive perfume, and she broke it and poured it over Jesus' head. And he said, she's doing this to prepare me for burial. She understood where his disciples did not. 
And she did this from love, knowing what he was going to do. Now, this is what caused Judas to go out and betray him. Somehow, why wasn't this sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Because I want to get my cut. So, it's interesting that everybody gets to do what they want to do. And there's really only two responses to Jesus. You love him, you receive him, or you despise and reject him. And there's not a third response. There's not a neutral response. Now, Jesus is arrested, and he's taken to the house of the high priest. He's examined by the high priest and all of the Jew Jewish ruling uh, committee called the Sanhedrin. And he's found blameless. Verse 53, And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But even then, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Now, what they're trying to do is to get something against Jesus so they can accuse him and put him to death. And what they're experiencing frustration about is they cannot find one thing. And the rule, the law, is that you have to have two witnesses who agree in their testimony to put a man to death. And the remarkable thing is they cannot find two guys to agree on anything. And it's got to be blowing their minds because this should have been open and shut. Two guys, they both agree, boom, we kill them. Now you know what's going on here is that the lamb for the Passover sacrifice has to be examined. And by this time, it had to be examined by the chief priests. Every Passover lamb had to be approved by the priests. And so they're trying to find something wrong with Jesus so they can accuse him, and they can't find anything. And they're, without understanding what they're doing, they are fulfilling the law, and they are approving Jesus as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They cannot find anything wrong with him. And the most fun thing is, is that these are the guys that desperately want to in order to legitimize what they're doing, but they cannot legitimize it. And the high priest 
even tries to get Jesus to incriminate himself. Can you please explain to me what they're trying to accuse you of? Hoping Jesus will just put his foot in it and, oops, I didn't mean to say that. That's okay. We got him now. Kill him. Jesus is silent the whole time. Now, this is a detail that God put into Scripture through Isaiah. In chapter 53, verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before it shears, so he did not open his mouth. So Jesus does not dignify this examination with any kind of response at all. But then the high priest says, verse 61, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus speaks up and he makes the good confession. I am the Son of Man, written about in Daniel chapter 7, who is coming with the clouds of heaven, presented to the Ancient of Days as an equal, sits at his right hand, who will rule over all. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom which will not pass away. Now the priests and the Sanhedrin condemn Jesus to death for the truth. Isaiah 53 verse 8 says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Indicating that this death was a substitution for all the people. And Isaiah 53 verse 9 says, He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. You know, the Bible says, I said in my alarm, all men are liars. I've never met anybody who has never told a lie. Can you imagine that? And the thing about a lie is it always covers up the first thing that's wrong. So a lie is always number two. But in his mouth, in Jesus' mouth, was found no lie. And this is certified by the high priest and the Sanhedrin. Now, at the same time, in verse 66, it says, Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth, but he denied it. 
saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them, but he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you're one of them because you're a Galilean and your speech shows it. And he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Now, you know, Peter's trying his best. And he had the courage to go right into where Jesus was. And he's right there with these guys that are with the high priest. And he's scared to death. And when the decisive moment comes, hey, you're one of them. He just caves in, gives way to fear and says, no, I'm not. Self-preservation runs strong in every single one of us. We don't like to think about dying. And he was very close to that, and self-preservation kicks in. Uh-uh, not me. And then he realizes what he's just done. But realize this, this is who Jesus died for. He knew Peter was going to deny him. And he says, it's going to be okay. He died for failures who are fearful in order to redeem them. Now in chapter 15, the chief priests, the elders, scribe, whole council, they hold a consultation and they take Jesus to the Roman governor Pilate. who declares Jesus innocent and still has to condemn him. And the first question that Pilate asks is, in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? And if Jesus says yes, then Jesus is a dead man because he is making himself to be a king instead of Caesar, right there in front of the Roman governor who's supposed to uphold the rights of Caesar in all of his provinces. So this is a clear setup by the priests to get Jesus killed, not on a theological point, but on a political point. And their deal is, look, let's just get him killed any way we can. That's our plan here. So Jesus knows this will condemn him, and he says, yes, I am the king of the Jews. Now, the priests go on to accuse Jesus of many serious things. And Jesus, again, fulfills prophecy by being completely silent. And Pilate says to him in verse 4, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing. So that Pilate marveled. Here's a guy that has just confessed to being king of the Jews, and he's being accused, and he's going to die, and he's not saying one word 
that is going to get him off the hook like anybody would when that self-preservation kicks in. It's like, oh, there's a mistake. Jesus isn't saying anything. He's letting these guys just bark like dogs. Let them bark, says Jesus. Now, Pilate is trying to get Jesus released because he can't find anything wrong with him. And in verse 10, it says he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. There's no crime in this guy. They're jealous of him. They want to get rid of him. And they want me to be the hitman. And Pilate's going, I don't know if I want to be the hitman. I don't think I want to do anything with this. But Pilate is trying to get Jesus off the hook and it isn't working and there's a riot forming. So, verse 15, Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. So he has to condemn Jesus to die. He knows he doesn't deserve it. This is unjust. But to prevent a riot, he does it. Jesus' justice is taken away. Because if Jesus lives, then we all die. And it's not the plan of God. So, then the soldiers then clothed Jesus with purple and put a crown of thorns on him and bow down before him and spit on him and mock him. You know, this is like Mary and Judas. Mary pours out her love with perfume. Judas, Judas runs off and betrays Jesus. And this is the soldier's reaction. It's more like Judas. There is only one choice you can make about Jesus. Either exalt him and love him or contempt and despising Jesus. And then Jesus is crucified. And it says in verse 22, they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And the priests do the same thing. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to him, take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Now, Jesus' death was already laid out graphically in Psalm 22, written by David a thousand years before this. It says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Saying literally no strength. And when you're crucified, your bones kind of pull out a joint. It says in Psalm 22, my heart is like wax. It is melted within me. And your heart, when you're crucified, is overloaded because of the stress of crucifixion. And you're under such stress, they feel like Jesus's heart actually ended up rupturing. It says in Psalm 22, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. Crucifixion dehydrates you. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. And this describes the scene all around Jesus. Everybody wagging their heads and going, well, he thought he was hot stuff. Why don't you come down off the cross? You're so powerful. Saved others, can't save himself. He calls them in Psalm 22, dogs. And then it says in Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Crucifixion especially pierces the hands and the feet. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots, it says in Psalm 22. Now the soldiers aren't aware of this prophecy. They don't feel the sovereignty of God making them do certain things like say, well, let's just do the usual, let's divide up the garments, well, there's one extra, what do we do for it? Well, it's nice. Let's not turn it into rags. Let's make it interesting. We gotta kill time here anyway. Why don't we roll dice for it? No tingle as the sovereignty of God leads them to do this, but it has to happen. And then crucified with criminals is written in Isaiah 53. Verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men. He was numbered with the transgressors, it says in Psalm, or Isaiah 53. So when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, that is the first line in Psalm 22. Somebody just gets it into their head to give him a drink. And it turns out to be sour wine, because it's cheap. The soldiers were drinking it. Now, why would a guy suddenly get it into his head, let's give him a drink? A detail. 
but it's in Psalm 69, verses 20 and 21. It says, reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, and there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink, which is sour wine. Now, the point of this is that the first half of that verse in Psalm 69 was fulfilled at the very beginning of the crucifixion, and that is... Verse 23, they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he didn't take it. That's gall. He tasted it, but he didn't drink it. Now, six hours later, the second half of the verse is fulfilled, and they gave me sour wine to drink. Here's a detail where the two parts are put together, A line, B line, and yet the fulfillment is separated by six hours but it's fulfilled exactly because God in his sovereignty is watching over his word to fulfill it. Now, think about this. In verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, three hours on the cross already, and then it becomes dark like a solar eclipse. But unlike a solar eclipse, the darkness doesn't fade and the sun come back. So there's darkness for three hours. And there's no natural phenomena that can explain it. But imagine that you're there at the crucifixion and you watch the lights go out. And you can't see. And you think, well, the sun can't be destroyed because if it was, it would blow up the world. And it's still there because all life on the planet would cease in eight minutes if anything happened to the sun. But there's no light. Wouldn't that freak you out? Now, you know, what, what God is doing on the cross is an eternal work, and it affects the entire cosmos. Make of it what you will, but God, with his power, turned out the lights. You can't do anything without the lights. And darkness metaphorically refers to things like confusion, sorrow, grieving, pain, loss of hope, death. And here, the sin of all the world, of all time, of all people, in all places, is being judged on the Son of God. And the light of the world is becoming sin for us on our behalf. All of the wrath of God against sin is being poured out on Jesus. Like Jesus was the one who thought up everything that was wrong, and then Jesus was the guy who went out and did it. That's how God is regarding Jesus right now.
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why do you leave me by myself? Jesus has known the closeness and the fellowship and the love of God as Father from all eternity. And right now, in this time, the Father has forsaken him to be abandoned by God is to lose his love and to lose his favor to lose his grace it means you're dead even while you still exist and to exist without the love of God is hell you know, people talk about hell on earth, right? Well, there is such a thing as hell on earth. And it is to be separated from the love of God. So yes, people do endure hell on earth. And it's so sad. To exist without the love of God. Now, the thing about hell on earth is it's temporary. And it's, this earth is not going to last. And on earth, there are still some good things. There's lots of good things from God. So it is hell on earth, but you can still have fun in the meantime. But hell in hell is forever. And there is nothing good in hell forever. There's only the absence of all good and the presence of pain and sorrow and everlasting contempt. See, all of this is falling upon Jesus. He's forsaken of God for us so that we would never know what it's like to be forsaken by God. And this is showing us God's compassion toward us. If you ever want to know if God loves you, you can look at Jesus on the cross and know that he loves you to the point where he would give his only begotten son in your place. Now, Jesus' last cry is not written for us here, but it is. It is finished, paid in full. So this is a success, even though it looks like complete failure, shame, and contempt. It's a success. It's a perfect sacrifice. It's an eternal sacrifice. This is what God has done in time. Now, after all this, there are people in the rest of the chapter who witness Jesus' death, and they testify that he really is dead. And the first one is the centurion. Verse 39. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And you know, the centurion has seen a lot of guys die. He's been in a lot of executions. But he has never seen a man die like this. 
And the very way that Jesus forgave everyone, including the centurion, while nailed to the cross, he has never seen ever in his life. And to see Jesus commit his spirit into the Father's hands and to say it is finished and to breathe his last. He says this, and it, it doesn't matter if you translate it a son of the gods. Some people want to say that. Fabulous. As far as the centurion was concerned, this guy was far beyond any mortal man. He says, this guy is God. And he's also a witness that he was dead. That is, when Joseph asked for the body, Pilate says, whoa, is he already dead? And he sends to the centurion who supervised it to confirm it. So the centurion confirmed to the Roman governor he is dead. Okay? But then in verse 40, you have women looking on. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joses, and Salome. And they also saw that Jesus was dead. This is the last thing in the world they wanted to see. These are women that have been with him ever since Galilee, and they traveled with him, and they loved him greatly, and they're devastated. Now, in verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea is a witness that Jesus is dead because he summons up courage, goes into Pilate and asks for the body. Now, up to this point, he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. And you think, how in the world did he get his courage together now, after Jesus is dead? The whole thing's blown up. This is the end, the end, the end, and he knows he's dead, so he goes and asks for the body. He blows his cover. He's announcing to the Sanhedrin, I am favorable toward this guy you just killed. That would be a great reason to just kind of walk away from it and this went south and it's not going to work and we're done and I must have been wrong, but no. How did he do that? It's the sovereignty of God. Yes, he gathered up his courage and there was God giving it to him. No, you are the guy. You need to go in there and get that body. You. Because the scripture says he was with a rich man in his death. And Joseph was that rich man. So God says, you are now getting all the courage you need together and go in there. Now, go. Does Joseph feel like, I can't stop myself. Stop me. Hold me back. Hold me back. No, he just goes in there and thinks, oh, I don't know where I got this courage, but boy, I'm going for it now. I'm fearless, boy. Nope. No tingles. It's just God sovereignly giving him what he needs. So he's a witness also because you don't embalm a body for burial that's still alive. You know this joke that shows up in movies like The Princess Bride? and Well, he's mostly dead, but he's not really all the way dead. He's mostly dead. 
There's no such thing as mostly dead. Jesus was completely dead. And in fact, when he asked for the body, the word corpse is used in the original language. Pilate gave the corpse, the dead body, to Joseph. And then at the end of the chapter, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. They're also witnesses that Jesus was buried and you only bury dead people. So, when you look at all these things, you realize God has all power to make this happen. He can shut off the light from the sun when he wants to. And he has the sovereignty. He can put it into some guy's heart to just, oh, let's give him a drink of sour wine. And just jump up and do that. When did he ever do that in his life? Or Joseph going in to ask for the body. Or the soldiers mocking him. Or any of the things that happened all night long and all day long, God made them happen. But what it means is that God cares about the details. That way you know it's God doing this. And so many details, and we haven't even covered them all. It shows that God cares greatly about all the details. Now you know it means that there's only one way to God, and that's Jesus. Everybody here knows that, right? Good. We're moving on from there. It also means that God cares about us. Sometimes you might get the feeling like, you know, God doesn't even know my name, doesn't know where I live, doesn't care a thing about me. And that is not true. No detail is too small for God. Psalm 139 says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Now, David also said the same thing in Psalm 40. Your thoughts toward me, O Lord, cannot be counted for multitude. And God has written down in his book all the details of your life, all the details. And he's very interested in carrying out those details. So Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. If he began it, he's going to finish it. And he writes again in Philippians 2, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out to a conclusion your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is at work in you. Have you received Jesus? Then God is at work in you. And you say, when was that? 
When do I feel the tingling that lets me know divine activity? <laughs> oh, tingling here. Oh, cold, 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 cold. You think, does God even know my name? Yes, he does. Even when it doesn't tingle, especially when it doesn't tingle. Any more than that guy running says, it's divine. I, it's the will of God. I got to give him sour wine. No. It was like the most normal thing in the world. But God says, it's got to happen. Do it now. And you say, well, God, how can you work in me? I see my weakness. I see my sin and my failure. How can you do that? Well, he can and he will. And he does. Because here you are. No tingle on the way to church this morning, right? Could have had an argument. Nevertheless, here we are. <laughs> See, God's working in you in just the same way that he works in the lives of his disciples and in people who hate him and in priests, Pilate, and Joseph of Arimathea. He's working in your life with sovereign power and compassion. Now, we're going to have communion this morning. And this is a good time to confess your sins to God and prepare your heart. And to remember, because we do remember the Lord's death until he comes. So let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father that you do have all power. You have all compassion. And that you're in the details. And you're in all the details of our lives. And we know that there is no detail too small that you can't be in it. And we're aware of all your thoughts toward us that cannot be counted for multitude. All of our days written in your book. So we trust in you this morning. And we trust in Jesus. And we thank you. Thank you for esteeming us above your own self. Bless our time of communion with you this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.